everyone we are back with the second season of i hope this message finds you well a podcast on curating where we myself chris detail and my friend and colleague eloy sweetman talk to curators about their approach to curating how they began and what they love about the profession today's episode is with sarah giannini sarah giannini is a curator writer and educator currently affiliated with the amsterdam-based organization if i can't dance i don't want to be part of your revolution her most recent project is the book Maquillage as Meditation, Carmelo Benet and the Undead, a personal voyage into the psyche of diseducation, where the figure of the Italian actor, author, director, philosopher and public persona Carmelo Benet is looked at through the inner voices of dissent, shame and rebellion. I know you have a very interesting background in semiotics, <laughs> which also connects a lot of our interests in language and communication. But before going there, I'm really curious to know what led you to become a curator? What was your trajectory or encounters and impressions that made you become a curator? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I read the question uh, in the kind of in the email already. So I've been kind of thinking about what kind of led me to this kind of path. And the answer, I think, is just like, I don't know, chance encounters and life. So I, uh, after studying semiotics, I was able to get an internship at the ZKM in Karlsruhe, Center for Arts and Media Technology, as part of a research program around uh, the question of art and globalization, because I had written my thesis on the this kind of... The, intercultural kind of communication tactics of Ai Weiwei. So like the question of globalization was yeah a lot part of what I was thinking at the time. And I joined the team there at the ZKM with the idea of actually using those few months of the internship to also prepare a PhD proposal. And that I think was a bit the trajectory that I had in mind for myself. So like staying more on the side of kind of theory or academia. And I never really kind of saw myself as someone who could have, (laughs) that could be engaged in something also practical somehow. I always felt very clumsy as a person and quite actually in terms of like curating, quite unable to take decisions and make selections. So I guess that a lot of what kind of the curatorial is or like our understanding of the curatorial is, is actually about like, making choices, selections, creating this, you know, space of coherency. And, um, but then as I was there, I started to work on this well, actually very huge exhibition, the global contemporary, where, I mean, of course I had more like a, a role as an assistant, but yeah, I started to engage with the practice of also like translating modes of thought into forms into spatial constellations and relationships and having conversations with artists or 
I mean, other practitioners, not necessarily like visual artists. And I think that is something that I found quite interesting and generative for myself. So then I kind of continued from there. I, I think I, I met people who had trust in me and that I also trusted and that maybe ignited also like a sense of excitement. Uh, for instance, actually, I think one of the key figures for me was Pauline, Pauline Curnet-Jardin. Uh, she's an artist who was part of this huge uh, exhibition at the ZKM. And when she came to the opening, we really kind of clicked. And I remember we kind of talked for like three days, like nonstop. And we continued to email each other and thinking about like uh, future projects. And, and then she introduced me to somebody else who actually became a mentor for me. Per Hutner, and I started to work with Per on a crazy traveling kind of project uh, called Wompo, and uh, and then I became kind of the curator of this I don't know strange group of people. Uh, I mean, I say strange like with a lot of love, but like a group of artists and neuroscientists, curators, musicians, and we were just traveling to different cities of the world. And I would kind of coordinate the travels. I would imagine kind of the time in the city and organize a lot of exchanges and meetings with like local practitioners there, organize these impromptu performances in museums and places that we had never seen before. <laughs> so I guess that was really like my initiation into, yeah, being like a curator or like a freelance curator, like doing my things and... Um, yeah, I guess that was my way into it. I never expected to be a curator. And yeah, for a long time, I also felt very uneasy with the um, title. Like, I never knew what to respond when people asked me, like, what do you do? And then I didn't know whether saying, like, I'm a curator was appropriate. Because also, for a long time... Up until now, almost, like, it's not that I really, like, do exhibitions. Like, I started to kind of set up this kind of more experiential situations or platforms, like, um, or kind of epistemic kind of environments with artists or non-artists. But and it's not that, like, I was, okay, I was thinking about the, about the exhibition as a medium of expression, not at all. So I think for me, it's also like it took some time to understand what I was doing. But yeah, I guess I am a curator after all. Yeah. I, I want to go back, maybe to talk a little about, about your background in semiotics and your interest in uh, language, which I think was a point of connection when we've met a couple of years ago and also collaborated on a research project for a while. And I would like to hear, how do you think about that relationship of art and language? For instance, to me, art, image and language complement each other. I, I think about them as the failure of both image and language to communicate. So there is the kind of complementary relationship. Mm. And I was wondering how, how that relationship works for you or how, the, how you en entered from the perspective of a semiotician, the, the field of the visual yeah. art. Yeah, that's a, that's a very good question. 
uh, very difficult question. <laughs> yeah, I'm not making also a grand thesis about, uh, you know, our, <laughs> the, uh, the relationship of language and image, but I've been thinking about that for myself, that one cannot exist without the other for me. Yeah, yeah. No, that for sure. I think also like an image kind of lives and circulates and means in language somehow. I um, I mean, language also understood as like a cultural cultural space and a space of interpretation and reception and and uh, kind of interchange. But I think like also like for myself, especially at the beginning of approaching this job uh, or like this practice. I would r- very rarely kind of start from an aesthetic question, like a question of form, let's say, or a question of art history or an, an interest in an artistic practice or how, like, uh, for instance, different, I don't know, a, set, a group of, of artists would actually be in dialogue with each other according to certain affinities, uh, which I believe it, it could be it is an approach in uh, curatorial practice. I always started from more like a linguistic question, from language and uh, or epistemolo- epistemological problems. And from there, then I would kind of get into the practice of an artist or a researcher or, I don't know, another kind of practitioner. And I think also in conversations with friends who are artists or curators, some, sometimes it came, it kind of it emerged that in my projects, it is not rare that two, I mean, or more artists who do not have anything to do with each other are put together. <laughs> I mean, that could also be a criticism somehow. But I think it is true because like I rarely kind of seek this kind of yeah, I don't know how to describe it, like if homogene- homogeneity or like coherency, that's not something that, or like, I don't know, making a point about like an aesthetic current or uh, there is not a sense of belonging, maybe let's put it that way. I think that the space of unbelonging and uh, kind of contradiction or yeah, unknown interests me uh, quite a lot. And maybe going back to your question, I think that has to do also with the question of language and not so much with the question of like the visual, the image, the kind of aesthetic form uh, as an approach to curating. Because also most of your projects that I know of, your freelance projects start from a question like say the question of the archive with the the unfold project or heterotopias which was a project about the kind of manifestation of colonial desires Mm -hmm. heterotropic heterotropic sorry it's okay (laughs) and uh, so there is like this deeply embedded research question or something to figure something out and then you get different people on board and then the manifestation can be also very different like uh, performances or mm-hmm. a website or sometimes an exhibition still yeah but yeah it's not so much like format driven as I see yeah. your practice yeah it's it's true and and I think that that has been very important for me keeping this kind of 
open approach to the format and to the medium of curating and letting the medium be in a way decided by the questions that we were kind of investigating with the you know group of people that I was you know that I would work with and I think in in all these projects there was also like a certain maybe like polemical stance towards exhibition making and showing displaying as a tradition that is also embed, embedded in a culture culture of violence and colonialism and so i i think for me it was quite important to unsettle kind of the gaze unsettle the form of the display and the kind of you know the the, the static constellation that like maybe like a museological kind of exhibition could kind of convey and always kind of bring back the the question of like embodiment performativity in that sense interpretation and yeah how things are kind of put together in 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 a, in, in time so also like kind of getting time into into space uh, getting bodies getting um perspectives into space and I felt that uh, mostly formats other than the exhibition were allowing me this kind of freedom or like this this mode of doing yeah well do you have a favorite part of curating like we both realize that we have a dueling positions actually I don't think it's dueling it's complementary yeah. Uh, where uh, I am really like uh, I really like working with existing objects and kind of being having time alone with the artwork and thinking through them, and then and Chris is really like more of an artist focused curator and 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 so and so what about you like do you have yeah an area that is your favorite? I think that's shifting for me. Probably, if you would have asked me these questions um, a few years ago, I would have given a different answer. So, like, for sure, I wouldn't have responded like the object, but more like, yeah, getting into a process of thinking and kind of co-producing, let's say. But but now, also, like, with different experiences, I actually also uh, found very much enjoyment and intellectual, you know, excitement in working with objects or like with archival material uh, so it's not that like I also don't want to sound like I oh, know I'm against exhibitions like not at all actually I'm more and more intrigued by the by the medium and it's something that I've been yeah more that I've get that I've got closer to recently and uh, yeah, I don't know. I think that uh, usually I tend to believe that my favorite part is the like the kind of concept phase, like where you develop something and you work on it with other people and you create all these kind of worlds and speculations and some of it can be realized, some of it not. And yeah, and I think that a part of me believes that this is my favorite part of curating, this kind of world creation and imagination and becoming and staying, let's say, like in the virtual. But then, and I'm always very scared when all of this has to be translated into something real. 
and I almost like don't don't want to do it. <laughs> I think I also have a tendency not to finish things, to keep things open. I mean, that's in general in life, but also in work. But then, it, as a matter of fact, when I do things, when I do realize them, I am extremely, yeah, like satisfied and really happy in a way that the the virtual enjoyment cannot actually. Yeah, I cannot really accomplish that. No, so yeah, I I don't I don't know if I have a. I'm still struggling to find what is that uh, gives me uh, more pleasure in doing. But uh, I would say that a lot of facets of what I do gives me joy and keeps me busy. Keep me busy. Yeah. Do you think that the reason why you like leaving things unresolved is connected to sort of the question of the unknown that you're interested in? So sort of like and maybe the resistance to the form of the exhibition is that it's kind of locking it into into place and you're using other platforms to sort of release that sort of certain barrier. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, for sure. And I think that and the question of time, like often like my projects have this kind of accumulative or like progress oriented way of developing. Most of them kind of stop to, I mean, like they don't develop forever. They kind of come to a halt, but somehow I, I keep the possibility open that they continue to exist. There's this expectation, I think, in the profession, but also at large in the world we live in to come up with a grand narrative, you know, mm. which so far has been like, if you talk about the world, yeah, like a grand narrative of white men. And I feel like, okay, it's like I'm drawing a bit too big of a parallel, but I think there is a lot of potential in keeping things flow and develop instead of coming up with answers that yeah. they are like then set in stone and even like mark a certain period in time mm-hmm. no totally and that can be done in exhibition too yeah i guess yeah yeah i like that also that a position can also change through an open project that also that you say that you don't have a favorite because it's changing i mean that makes also sense i also feel the same like i i say i'm really interested in the object but is that only because the of the pandemic and I, that's what I've been thinking about. And, and like, I, who was I as a curator two years ago? And, you know, and who will I be in, you know, six months time? Like, it is also funny, like, and I feel like from these conversations, like, you know, fixing a position is really something that we realize that we can undo. Right? Like, yeah. Yeah. Hopefully. Hopefully, yeah. yes. Yeah. Not to say that not being fixed by a, a, to a, one position means that one, one has no position. It's just that it can it can change. It can change. Yeah. 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 I really wanted to share more on a very daily basis with others and talk. And so that was really like the, the main drive. Uh, of course, financial stability as well. But I think that the, yeah, the desire to share with others was the main drive. And I'm really happy that I'm now in this new, in this different constellation. Yeah, it's it's working well for me. 
I have a question that I don't know where it is going, but it just occurred to me as you spoke about your relationship with this artist that you developed this friendship mm. throughout these years of working together. And this is something I think about a lot that on one hand, there is a division between my professional and personal life, or I don't know even there is, but I, in some way I tried to make some, but then I also sometimes question if it makes sense. Because also in some way, in many ways, my work is a way to form relations and share and exchange with people. And this is the way of, of for me to be in the world. And that is extreme, like that, that is the personal. Yeah. And but then sometimes because there are certain professional either expectations or structures that we are put in as me as a curator or an artist or another collaborator that comes maybe with different kind of responsibilities, expectations, uh, institutional frameworks, I sometimes struggle how to make it work because I have, I become sometimes insecure, like, is it friendship yeah. or are we just taking advantage of each other? Can I trust this feeling? Can I really believe that this is going long, further than, you know, this one-off collaboration within a professional setting. And I was, yeah, it just, I don't know where this question is really going, but it made me think of that because I feel maybe in a similar way, you also form strong relationships with people mm-hmm. through your work. Yeah. And it's a form of learning and sharing and, and exchange. But I don't know, do you have any reflections on that? Like what works for you or what are maybe the limits of this way of being in the world? Because at the end, we are bound by institutions, you know, like it's mostly the curators who are getting the funding. And that also comes with certain kind of um, acknowledged or unacknowledged forms of power mm-hmm. uh, of, you know, reliance, whereas I want more of an interdependence in that relationship. I don't know. Yeah, no, it's it's very true. The boundaries, yeah, it's very blurred and it's hard to figure out like what these kind of relationships are something that i noticed though is that it is increasingly more difficult to set professional boundaries with collaborators who are also friends like from before let's say like and that of course happens a lot because i mean exactly because like my friends are also you know mostly like people that I collaborated with, artists or curators that I really, I don't know, have a high consideration of and that I love to work with. So I often end up working with kind of friends, let's say. And then in in those moments, it becomes really hard for me to kind of put on the hat of the institution or the curator and setting, yeah, setting these boundaries or having clear demands that I don't know I think it's probably also like a personal yeah my kind of personal issue that I'm not so good at setting band, like hard boundaries but yeah also now that I work for an institution like it's something that I kind of have to do like if in my previous life as a freelance curator you know open-endedness is something that I would kind of you know encourage and support this is not something I can really afford to do now so I have also, yeah, so yeah, it's quite tricky. And, and I think like with people I know less, 
or that I don't have like this kind of intimacy, I'm more able to perform the institutional role much better than with uh, quote-unquote friends or like, yeah, people that I'm more intimate with and close to and that, you know, we also share, yeah, intimate moments of our lives and because then it immediately becomes personal. Like, you know, we know what's going on in each other's life. So then, of course, you don't, you don't want to interfere with that, but at the same time, you have to. Yeah. And, but also, I think what you were saying, Chris, about not knowing exactly like the nature of certain relationships and agendas, I would say, behind those relationships is definitely very, very present in, in, in the way we move in, in the world, I think, as curators. And it's quite, uh, can become a bit poisonous, I would say. Not that I had like very bad experiences myself, but I can definitely see that there is a gray zone of opportunism because we live in such an exploitative <laughs> system that, you know, it's almost, yeah, it's almost, it's almost taken for granted that we kind of indulge in this, you know, networking and like kind of uh, friendship zone to also get somewhere. And probably like we all do it mutually. I don't know. And and maybe it's okay. I don't know. But uh, yeah, but it's complicated. It's very complicated. I'd like to ask a question about, I saw that you have a publication coming out soon. Yeah. Yeah, that I have to finish like tomorrow. So, yeah. <laughs> that is a result of a research project around the persona of an Italian actor, director, <laughs> Carmelo Bene. And it always fascinated me, or I always was wondering what lies behind your fascination, what drives you to, to explore this person, and <laughs> what is your relation to, to his ghost, say? Yeah. Yeah, you use the right word. <laughs> uh, well, the publication, which is entitled uh, Maquillage as Meditation, Carmelo Bene and the Undead, is actually a way to come to terms with the reasons why I have this fascination. So, like, the book itself is about this. It's a kind of very personal inner exploration of this kind of mixed, to say the least, feelings towards this kind of uh, very kind of big, uh, bulky, macho figure from kind of Italian post-war culture, who was like a theater actor, filmmaker, but also like TV personality and writer and poet, you know, like, who was like many things. He was also like this, you know, the usual kind of so-called genius or enfant terrible that, uh, you know, people kind of have uh, very stereotypical relationships too so like he's very he's been very rarely almost like kind of studied and analyzed in a context he's always been treated as this ah you know the genius the weird the weirdo Carmelo Bene and but for me like actually his let's say like uh, performance philosophy that I started to call the theater of disidentity uh, played quite an important formative role in the way in which I kind of came of age, we can say. So, like, I first saw him on TV when I was 10, and he was 
like kind of attacking almost like a, a theater packed with journalists and I don't know students and other actors like people from the you know like Dolce Vita Romana <laughs> politicians and he was just like simply or like in a very straightforward but also crazy way just talking about the fact that he didn't exist and that actually also they didn't exist and that it was all a matter of like fiction and language and yeah and I remember being almost <laughs> like uh, totally bewitched by this idea of like that you can say that you don't exist while you appear there and that really marked I think very strongly the way in which I develop as a person also the kind of the possibility to say no to a role that was given to me maybe as a young girl you know in the Italian province like that possibility of saying like I am not in a way gave me empowered me to to say I am not this or like you know to 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 tear apart the script that it's just a script it's nothing more than a script it's not a reality it's not a truth it's just language it's a script it's a fiction and I guess that it is via Carmelo Bene that in the end I went to study semiotics also <laughs> but uh, obviously especially you know like now that I'm more aware of what patriarchy is or you know what certain dynamics in western society are I'm also very aware of how dangerous and toxic also this figure was so so the book is really like going into the dirt the dirt of being kind of attached to such a such a role model which is you know the opposite of a role model <laughs> and what to do what to do also like with these figures from the past that you don't really want to celebrate but somehow are part of your past yeah I mean a strategy would be to be in denial but I learned through experience that denial doesn't bring anything <laughs> very I mean it's not transformative and healing never so it's the yeah so the book is the opposite of denial it's like really like getting my hands into the dirt so it's a very it's been very hard to work on this publication and I'm, I'm very nervous also about it because I think it is also a bit um I don't know controversial let's say yeah it's not really the perfect moment to write about like this kind of white <laughs> white male persona I don't know but yeah, I felt that I just had to do it, so I did it, and uh, we will see. We will see how it goes. I also see that you've got three people contributing also to the book, and also there. I, I know that Jacopo Milani is somebody that you've uh, worked with before, and maybe you want to talk about also their contributions and how they factor into mm -hmm. maybe relieve some pressure from you. Yeah. <laughs> that's right <laughs> yeah so the three contributors are Jacopo Miliani who is an artist based in Italy in Milan whom I yeah collaborated with quite a lot in the past and we also are very good friends speaking of friend, professional friendships the other contributor is Arnisa Zeko who is based in Amsterdam you may know her she's the director of Wrong Wrong an art historian and curator and also 
a more recent but still a very good friend of mine and we've been in kind of a fervent kind of artistic dialogue in the last years like we, we were teaching also together at the Dai at the Dutch Art Institute and we collaborated on some curatorial projects and and then the third contributor is Snezhanka Mihailova who is an artist and philosopher whom I actually met through this project and we became also quite close to each other but it's not a let's say like a friendship that predated the Carmelo Banner research we started to talk because I kind of knew that she had a very kind of close uh, relationship with a performer and actress who used to work with Carmelo Bene in the past. And so I, yeah, I was interested to know more and also like Snezhanka in general, like, I mean, thinks a lot about the question of like uh, the theater of thought, the theater of language. So a lot of her, let's say like research interests cross with mine and actually with Carmelo Bene's idea of the theater of this identity. So we started to talk and, uh, yeah, and indeed uh, her contribution to the book is based on this kind of 15 years of conversations with Silvia Pasello, who was an, act- with an actress who worked also with Carmelo Bene. And, uh, yeah, and these three contributions are, yeah, I, I, in the book I call them like the magic gloves that I wear to touch the stinky body or the stinky corpse of Carmelo Bene. So they're definitely, because they're also the result of like really long hours of discussions and conversations. And in some cases, like with Jacopo, years also, you know, figuring out Carmelo Bene in our kind of backgrounds. So, yeah, this is how I position the contributions also as other entry points into understanding the complexity of Carmelo Bene and also really has almost as a support system. Yeah. And then there is also another kind of presence in the book, who's uh, Gio Wyeth, who was also part of our... So, like, I was teaching with Arnisa and Gio at the Dai, and uh, and our course kind of start departed from Carmelo Bene. So his, his kind of... His presence is quite prominent in the book, but there is not a contribution, but his... Also a voice, let's say. Also because the book is written as a kind of, as a script. So there are like characters and let's say like Gio is more like a character. Oh, yeah. Rather than a contributor. Yeah, also works with his practice of <laughs> characters and avatars, I guess. So, ah, yes. Because also you say that the this book happens, has happened and will happen on the 31st of October. Yeah. Yeah. So, um what does that mean, though? <laughs> uh, it means that it's a, it's a script of an event that happens on the 31st of October. So, so it is like a temporal loop, in a way, because like every time you open the book, you are in the 31st of October. But it's the 31st of October that, of course, has happened, and he's happening while, you know, in the moment of reading and will happen constantly. So, yeah, this, I don't know if it makes sense. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> also makes sense in terms of this, uh, in what you were talking about, in terms of kind of creating maybe an unfixedness in your work, that it's, in this case, it's unfixed and fixed in this yeah. date. It's stuck. Yeah. Like we are stuck to the 31st. Yeah. 
which is, uh, yeah, I mean, of course, it's also, I mean, it's a bit of a symbolic date. It's the, it's the night of the dead and also the moment in which kind of the other world and, and kind of this world come into contact with each other. So it's almost also like a kind of, you can say like, almost like a summoning of the ghosts of Carmelo Bene. So that's why it happens there. And there is also a venue. It's a palace of melancholy. So the book happens on the 31st of October in the palace of melancholy, which is also, I mean, melancholies, <laughs> all these things that get stuck to us. <laughs> but I would say that the book is like also an attempt to get out. Yeah. <laughs> yes. We have a funny question, maybe for the end, or maybe it's not funny, actually. We always ask our guests, what would they do if they weren't a curator? And that can be an answer that is realistic. You know, maybe you have or had a, a plan B, but also something that is more speculative. Yeah. Hmm. I think it has to be speculative because I, I didn't have other... I mean, I never had a plan in the first place. I didn't have a plan A nor a plan B, really. But I think I would love to be a doctor. Ah, Fascinating. Uh, uh, why do you, why a doctor and also what kind a general practitioner or a specialist? I think doctor? a general practitioner. Yeah, because I um, yeah I don't know I I'm very I'm very into how, how do you call it symptomatology? No, like reading the reading of symptoms. It's actually very connected to semiotics. That's interesting. I never thought about it. But like, at least in Italian, like the part of a doctor's practice in which they have to make a diagnosis based on symptoms, it's called like semiotica, something like this. Because it's like from, I mean, you read the signs, the symptoms. So, and I'm very, I'm very into that. I, I really enjoy doing that for myself, for I don't know, the people around me. Now, of course, you know, with the internet, we're all a little bit doctors, <laughs> which is also, I mean, like probably part of the, of the terrible drift in which we find ourselves in at the moment. But I think, yeah, I would have enjoyed medicine and knowing a bit more about the body. And um, yeah. That's good. That's a good answer. I like that answer <laughs> too. Yeah. Yeah. In the next episode, we interview Sarmat, an independent non-profit interdisciplinary platform for research, publishing, collective thinking and education in the fields of art, architecture and design. We discuss editorial practices and their links to curating and working in a collective with the three core members, Alireza Abassi, Kolnar Abassi and Arvan Pourabassi. If you have feedback, we'd love to receive your email at I hope this message finds you well at gmail.com. 
You can also follow us on Instagram at I Hope This Message and find us on SoundCloud under the same handle. Our jingle was by the artist duo Momo Noez and our sound engineer is Nick Thomas.